life, love, and the grind. They talk about how changes are the only thing that's always constant. And we got a couple of changes to talk to you about today. First of all, you're probably noticing you're waking up a little early if you're joining us. It's worth getting out of bed for today's show. We've got uh, activist Tio Hardiman, um, famed activist who you may have seen in The Interrupters documentary. You may have also seen him on various newscasts throughout the city. This guy is on the forefront along with his crew trying to intercept the violence and trying to figure out solutions, working with police and finding out which way to go. We've got a couple of other changes as well. If you're watching us on Facebook, it's because you are not listening to us on 88.9 because we are now broadcasting on 90.3. That's right. So tune in and tell your friends to tune in to 90.3. Um, Sean, what do you think, man? A lot of changes. Yeah, and as always, we try to shine spotlight on the people that are doing the good things and going above and beyond for the community, and nobody better than T.O. Hardiman has been doing uh, good for the community for a long time. So it's an honor to have him come and kind of talk about everything going on in Chicago. You know what I like, and I'm just going to tell you, you know what I like about T.O. is a lot of times you talk about or you hear about politicians who when they're running for politics, it's maybe the first time you've heard of them. All of a sudden you're seeing them here, you're seeing them there because they are running for something. Here's a man who I've noticed to be an activist, a pure activist before ever entering, delving into um, politics, right? Governor, presidency. Right. You've done a few things, Steele. You've done a few yeah. things. Let's, let, let's talk about how you started. Let's talk about how it kind of all came to fruition. What is Ceasefire? Well, no, you know, I'm the former director of Ceasefire Illinois, and Ceasefire is a public health model uh, aimed at changing mindsets and behaviors associated with violence. Uh, you know, it's based on public health principles, but more than, more than uh, just uh, public health, it's all about uh, hiring the right type of staff that can go out and intercept whispers in order to stop a killing on the front end, which is very important. Also, when I used to uh, operate uh, overseas Ceasefire, we worked with about 1,200 high-risk youth in the city of Chicago, we spent 22,000 man hours with them, young men and women. That's why we know that we can get results because we've spent time. Out of the 1,200 high-risk youth, we 30% uh, of them, we uh, re-enrolled back in school. Another 35%, we uh, helped them find employment. The other 30%, we connected them to social services because some people need a little extra help sometimes in order to get their mind right. It's all about changing the mindset. And the other, like 10 or 7%, uh, they may have re-offended. You're not gonna have 100% success, but you know, during, during the years, we actually mediated around maybe a good six, seven hundred conflicts on the front end where we stopped somebody from firing the shots, you know, because of the mediation process. And that, that's just part of it. There's five components to the model. You know, we're dealing with faith-based leaders, community outreach, you know, public education campaign, and we also like the violence and eruption part of it, which is really uh, pretty good because uh, we receive phone calls. So let me just clear all this up because, you know, I just want to be clear about a lot of stuff get to the grind with you guys here. Yeah, the so I, love the, I love the title of your show, Love, Life, and the Grind. I love it. Now, this, this, this is the thing right here. Uh, premeditated murder, I mean, like, first-degree murder is premeditated murder. Most people don't talk about that. They just commit the act, okay? Second-degree murder is, like, without, like, premeditation, without a doubt, but it just happens right on location. So a lot of times it's hard to stop a guy from hurting somebody if you don't receive a call, if you're not right on location, to kind of like intervene. I just want to make that clear for the listening audience because people play games with that sometimes. Right now in Chicago, the homicide clearance rate is about 14%. And we really need to do a better job in that area, okay? But at the same time, I'm not a police. I don't really, really work with police like that. My job is to stop it before it happens. 
Therefore, nobody goes to jail, nobody goes to the cemetery, okay? But that's just part of the model in regards to what we do uh, when it comes down to violence interrupters. My organization is Violence Interrupters uh, Incorporated here in Chicago, and I work uh, throughout the nation as well. I'm also an adjunct professor in the field of criminology and criminal justice and restorative justice uh, at North Park University. So I'm doing my best to educate a, a, you know, a new generation of people coming into the mix. And then you mentioned, and I'll say this real quick, you mentioned uh, my, my run for governor, which was a pretty good run. I must admit, uh, we secured close to 30% of the state vote in 2014. It was a little bit more difficult when I ran against J.B. Prisker. You know, he spent $170 million. Now, I just want to clear this one um, you know, fact up, too. I did announce I was going to run for president, but I didn't receive any momentum, so I pulled back. But nobody can get mad at me for that because the thing is this. Everybody said they're tired of Donald Trump. I put myself out there, you know. I put myself out there. I had the courage to put myself out there. My website is, uh, you know, Hardiman for America, and I, we did okay. I mean, I put myself in the loop, but uh, we didn't receive any... Uh, traction so I had to pull back just uh, making the, the right decision there so I don't want nobody to think I went crazy because running for president is a higher level but you know what I'm the guy that'll pull it that's just the way it is I gotta ask you about that yeah, you yeah. ran uh, uh, or were looking to run against the president on the Republican ticket whereas mm -hmm. I believe previously for um, governor you ran on right. the Democratic ticket was there a statement you were trying to make uh, with running on the Republican? I believe, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, it was yourself and uh, was it Joe Walsh? Or, yeah, Joe Walsh, he announced he was going to run. A couple other gentlemen, I forget their names right now. Um, and, and how did that play out? How did you make the decision to run on that ticket? And did I hear some primaries were canceled? Or were yeah, they, uh, they canceled the primaries in uh, North Carolina, uh, a few other states, because uh, Donald Trump, uh, Trump has trumped America, in my opinion, uh, you know, with all his... Uh, you know, like all of uh, his, uh, you know, uh, I put it like this. Everything Donald Trump is doing right now, standing in the media all the time, dominating the media actually all the time. And Donald Trump has a lot of different strategies and techniques that he's employing to kind of throw people off uh, and take attention away from some of his misdealings, I believe. So the reality is I put myself out there as an American citizen. I love my country. I'm a patriot. And in reality, I'm more of a freelance politician. Let me explain that to you. Yeah, what happens yeah I'd like to know yeah, the right. difference between an activist and a right. politician. That's the, yeah, I bring you know, yeah. I'm more of a freelance politician. Understand this. When I ran for governor in 2014, we secured close to 30% of the state vote. I ran as a Democrat. Uh, the Democratic Party still did not embrace me and bring me in the fold. The number of votes Pat Quinn lost to Bruce Rauner back then is the number of votes I won against him in the primary. Now, if they'd have brought me in the fold, Pat Quinn probably would have uh, you know, uh, maintained you know, himself as the governor of Illinois. He would have secured his seat. I believe that, okay? Now, when I ran for governor again in uh, 2018, uh, Chris Kenny is one of my good friends now. You know, Daniel Biss is a good friend of mine. Now, J.B. Prisker is a little, you know, I'm not here to, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but J.B. Prisker, I met with him after the primary, had a good meeting with him, but since he became the governor, I haven't heard back from J.B. Every time I see him, he gives me a big bear hug. How you doing? Everything's cool. But I'm trying to talk to him about a few things. The same way he called me, uh, man to man, out of res respect, he should just meet with me. Now, the thing is, I'm a freelance politician. I say this because the Democratic Party did not embrace me. Uh, I didn't have a problem running against Donald Trump. Uh, real, real talk, because the thing is, the guy, uh, under Donald Trump right now, five of his uh, associates have been indicted. Five of them have gone to prison, okay? He has 89 active investigations going on right now within his administration, all right? I'm talking about everything that's going on in the news right now. But some of it could be fake news. I must say that. Some of it could be. I'm not here to really bash Trump either. My thing is Trump is a human being. Uh, some of his policies I don't like, but we haven't gone to war yet. So, I mean, he's doing something halfway. He, you know, whatever people say. I'm going to put it like this. He's doing something. Just put it like that. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> he's doing a good job of throwing people off. I think uh, he's just a businessman. And I believe Donald Trump uh, ran for president because he was really 
jealous of Barack Obama. I mean, he said that a few times, and uh, he was surprised he won, actually. With all this Ukraine, uh, misdealings with the Ukraine, and criticizing women, criticizing uh, immigrants, criticizing handicapped people. I just don't know how he pulled it off. But America probably wanted to hear from a guy like Donald Trump. I'm, I'm what you call the not-so-perfect candidate. That's another reason why I was going to run for Donald Trump. That's my campaign slogan, T.O. Hardiman, the not-so-perfect can candidate. Uh, let's uh, let's straighten it out. That was my, my, my logo. Yeah, let's I like straighten it. it out. Yeah, right. I like it. Okay. And there's nobody who's farther from perfect than Donald Trump. That's what I'm so talking about. That's, that was my rationale. 89 open uh, right, investigations. Right. Yeah, yes, 89 and, investigations. And even if half of those are wrong, I mean, there's still at 40 right, investigations. <laughs> I mean, it's unheard of. Right. It's actually yes, it it's, it's unprecedented in our uh, political landscape, for sure. Now, I've been hearing a lot about politics every which way. What I want to hear more about is activism, because I, I, I okay. feel like that's more like the purity in, in getting involved with the community. Yeah. Here's a question I had. Okay. Um, when you uh, have uh, gang members, the hierarchies in gangs, mm -hmm. helping to diffuse situations, right. now, now, now to me that seems maybe counterintuitive. You Explain how did that work? How did you get that principle? How did you more than that get people to to embrace your vision on how this should work and help you diffuse situations. Was there anything in it for well, them? How does that work? Well, to be honest with you, I'm one of the big brothers in the city of Chicago. A lot of young guys look up to me. I have a lot of respect from a lot of the guys on the streets and everything. So it's, it's easy for me, really. I believe I was anointed to, to do that kind of work, just being honest with you. Uh, right now, uh, this year, my violence and weapons have mediated about 62 conflicts that could have turned deadly. And most important, a lot of young guys are looking for somebody to talk to them at any given time to try to talk them down, uh, if possible. It depends on uh, the stakes, though. I don't play with the public. You know, some of these situations out here are too deep for people to understand, So, because uh, people are living in a concrete jungle, so to speak. And a lot of times, people are shot and killed for misunderstandings, misperceptions. People lie on you, you know, about a female, somebody owes somebody some money, uh, some of it is gang warfare. But the, right now in Chicago, there's, uh, last year there were 454 homicides. This year we're on pace to at least look at about 500 homicides, which is not good at all. There's a lot of money being spent, uh, spent in violence prevention, but the thing is this here. The only solution to stopping the killing, and, and I'm talking about black Chicago now, is overall African-American unity. Because right now it's not really a program issue. The issue is that my people are not unified. That's what's killing my people right now. And the young guys all the way up to the older people should all come up under one type of understanding. We are Americans and we're going to be Americans the rest of our lives, but black Chicago needs to unify, period. Because we cannot continue to look for outside influences to stop the killing. And I say that because the police, they do whatever they can do, but we still have over 500 hom close to 500 homicides. And it's been this way for a long time, but uh, for the, uh, giving credit to some of the young guys out there, we do stop some of the stuff on the front end. And we can back it up. I have people that, that would provide testimonials on how we stop them from taking a life of another person. So going back to The Interrupters, yeah. your documentary in 2011. Yes. Um, so going from there to now, how much has changed? And, well, and have there been better years in homicides? I mean, 500 is a lot of homicides. Chicago's always labeled, you know, murder cap capital yeah. of the country. But, I mean, I remember in the 90s, it was, it was more. way yeah. way higher, nine hundred, yeah, over a thousand. Yeah, it was off the thousand. charts in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. So good. we've kind of come down, and, and where has yeah. it come from your documentary in two thousand eleven to now? Well, just going back through the numbers, I can recall back in two thousand four. That's when I actually created the Violence Interrupters, and I'm not here to take all the credit. I believe a lot of people put good work in. There's a lot of unsung heroes out there, but I did play a role. So in two thousand four, I predicted in the Chicago Sun Times 
uh, in January of that year that Chicago would have about a 25% reduction in killings. And that year it was a 25% reduction in killings because I knew that I had the right individuals that could go out there and maybe make some things happen. For example, in the Little Village com community on the south side of Chicago, the Mexican-American community, we brought together the two different big gangs over there. I don't really mention the gang names all the time. It's not that important. The people know Chicago, they know Little Village. So they are, we had a peace treaty with them guys over there, and uh, it lasted for about 10 years, 10 years. So that goes to show you the kind of work that was put in. Also, in the Humble Park community around the Puerto Rican gangs, uh, you had the different factions over there. They haven't been fighting now for the last seven, eight years. So uh, most of the, the, there's, uh, the majority of the gun violence takes place in black Chicago, like Inglewood, Austin, West Garfield, East Garfield, Roseland, North Lawndale. Uh, as a matter of fact, we just had a young guy killed uh, the other day he was part of the Bean Town uh, a crew. I just say it's a crew. He was 18 years old, and in that particular crew, they only recruit guys that are 12 to 18. You cannot join the Bean Town crew if you're over 18. So you have to understand the change in God. When you ask what's changing, you have cliques now. You have more cliques on the streets and factions. Some people think it's this big gang presence. Yeah, you have gangs, but now it's like block by block. Or some guy might have some of the gangs might have four or five blocks that they oversee. And it's important for people that's working on the streets to understand the block-by-block -block dynamic. If you don't understand that dynamic, you cannot really get the job done. So I received phone calls. As a matter of fact, I just launched a new YouTube channel uh, titled T.O. Mr. Ceasefire Hardman, uh, True Violence and Rupture Stories. And I'm, I'm kind of talking and revisiting some of these conflicts that I had to mediate when we stopped people from being killed on the front end. So what's changed? Not a lot. It's just different players. That's all that has changed. You got different faces now, and people are being just shot and killed for almost anything on the streets of Chicago uh, nowadays. Has it made it a lot harder um, with a lot of these bigger gang leaders that do go away? Do they kind of oversee those neighborhoods and make sure that there is kind of some sort of order, or now is it just a total free-for-all? No, that's over with now. So it's pretty much people, every man for themselves, every clique for themselves. Now you have some OGs that can go in and still, they have influence. You know, like in the Violence and Ruptures, I have a 40-hour training curriculum, and what happens is that we have like some talking points about having access is good, but having an influence is more important. So a lot of OGs have the access, but can they influence young guys not to make a decision, you know? But see, you have to understand this too, okay? I just want to be clear with everybody listening to me so I can make sense in layman's terms. The reality is this. If, if, if a person is a game banker, or if a person is a, a Marine, or if a person is a... Um, army person, all right? They've been trained to go to war. And a lot of these guys on the streets have been trained to fight and shoot or whatever the case may be. Now you're telling them to be at peace. Some people don't want to hear that because I've been, they've been trained to do other stuff. So you come to them, see now the uh, spirit of revenge is real high. High, I mean. Okay, what happens is that if a guy shoots a person in a particular clip or a different game, nine times out of ten, the game members will re retaliate. So people have to understand the mindset there because some guys are taking a blood oath that they protect one another. You know, you got guys, it's never going to be a one-on-one -on -one fight. One guy fights you, next thing, next thing you know, 20 guys are fighting you. So if you don't understand what's going on on the street level, sincerely, it's just hard to do this kind of work because the killers are not all gang-related. It's all a lot of personal stuff. People not making money in a drug game like they used to. People think they're making a lot of money. In the 90s, they were making millions of dollars. In the year 2019, a lot of guys are not even fighting about money at all. They're just fighting and beefing. 45% of African-American young men in Chicago are unemployed right now. That's a high number. An idle, idle mind is like a devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. People have too much time out there, so we, gotta, we have to find a way 
to employ people, uh, train people in the areas and wanted to become a productive member of society. You know, I know a lot of young guys, and you can meet some of the guys I work with right now, they'll tell you straight up, I'm not trying to work for nobody. I'm doing my thing. Some of them not even making a lot of money. What do you do with a guy that's not concerned about a whole lot of money, and all he wants to do is just shoot and kill? How do you work with them type of guys? That's important to know that. But it's good to have relationships with people and all from all different walks in life. Just put it like that. And I have those relationships with, with a lot of young guys. How, how do you work with someone? With, uh, how do you get through to them? What's their, do you find what motivates them? Do you show them a better alternative? What is your strategy to reach? This is all about just establishing a relationship. The only way you're going to stop the killing is, is based on personal relationships anyway. And that's how you do it. But so motivating a young man that doesn't really want to work right now is a work in progress. Just put it like that. You have to still spend time with the individual. And it's good to have them, those kind of guys on your side because what happens is that uh, you can call them and they can shut stuff down for you depending on how they feel in that particular day. But some people have given up. They've, they've been what's called disenfranchised from overall society. They feel that they've been ostracized. They don't really care. So we, in, in reality, they're still human beings, though. We have to reach these individuals, you know, to the best of our ability. For example, some I have a young guy I'm working with right now, but this guy doesn't want to do anything. But he still calls me to check in with me, so that's pretty good. But this is what they tell you all the time. If you need me for something else, let me know. <laughs> that's what they tell me. I know what something else is, but I don't call it for something else. <laughs> okay, but these are guys that have a lot of respect for me, and I appreciate them. It, you know, it just takes time. Some people have to uh, bump their heads several times before they actually get the message or receive the message. Unfortunately, some people have to really bump their heads. This must, this work must make you a target or must make your ground crews a target in some communities, or does it not? Do people respect what you do enough where you're not? And, and how do you assure your own safety and the yeah. safety of the people out there? Well, that, that's a good question. Or is it respect? Well, it's about, well, no, at any time you can get hurt out there. Uh, you had this guy, uh, I'll just give you an example, a comparison. Uh, it has nothing to do with the violence of the work in the community for stopping gun violence. I forget the guy's name, he lost his life a stingray. He was a guy that was working with wild animals a lot uh, from Australia, oh, you know yeah. the guy, he lost his life a stingray, pierced his heart. He was out in the ocean and uh, mm -hmm. picked up a stingray and pierced his heart or something. But the thing is that he was going deep. He was going deep, I mean, he was going into the jungle. He was working with all kinds of wild animals and sooner or later, but unfortunately he, he lost his life. But the point I'm making there is this. Yeah, Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin, Steve yeah, Irwin. yeah, he lost his life. The point I, I would like to make is once you're out there really, really working with these young guys, there's always an, a chance that you can lose your life. And uh, there's no way to actually stop an uh, act of violence without some form of confrontation. I saved the life of a transgender uh, young lady. I didn't know she was transgender. Uh, I got a call from a guy's cousin and uh, he said that his other cousin was in the process of killing this lady. And uh, he told me where the guy lived, and he met me over there. We go in and go inside, you know. Once the door was open, we pushed the door open. The guy got the lady down on the ground with a razor to her, and he had already cut her in the neck a little bit. And I told the guy, man, you need to get up off the lady. What's up, you know? And it wasn't the best of scenes. I can't talk the way I need to talk on the show about it, but a lot of profanity was used. I had to talk real crazy to the guy to make him understand you're not going to take this lady's life. And the reason he wanted to take her life because he played like he did not know she was a transgender lady, but he did know because the lady said, I told you when I met you. And he had been in a relationship with her, and she had been in the community telling people about the relationship, and he got mad because of his image. And so I, we, we saved her life, myself and, and, and his cousin. But the thing is, you don't hear about these kind of stories out there, but I'm still in contact with the young lady today, and she's doing okay. And believe it or not, crazy as it sounds, 
uh, about six, eight months later, she went back in a relationship with them. They, they're back together. <laughs> and it's crazy because he had already cut her neck pretty, pretty severely, you know? I, you know, yeah. I got to ask you. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, crazy. Yeah. The yeah. fact that you would get that first call and be yeah. able to intervene before um, the yeah. thought is called to call the police, for instance. I know that there is a, uh, a you know, a no snitch code on the streets. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about that. Tell, tell me about how, how you guys are able to penetrate um, some aspects where, where other institutions can't. And, and um, what value does that add? Also tell me then... Um, is there any interaction with the police? Do you guys work? I, I remember seeing you once at a press conference where you were trying to get a meeting with Superintendent yeah, Eddie Johnson, right. um, other church leaders as well. How receptive is the police to accepting working with you guys, or do you do your own thing? Are you independent? Well, I don't necessarily work with the police myself. Uh, I've had relationships with the police in the past, but we've never been in a situation where we served as any type of informant or anything like that. And, and the reason why, because... Uh, you have to understand there's a preponderance of evidence that dictates Chicago police have been corrupt for a long time. I'm not here to bash the police. I mean, a lot of changes have been made. I believe I've been blackballed with the police department because I'm the guy that stood up against police brutality and excessive force. I'm the guy that was out there marching all the time, speaking truth to power. And I'm not a bad, I wasn't wrong about what I was doing. The Department of Justice came to Chicago. They conducted an investigation on CPD. And uh, what they found out is CPD is one of the most corrupt police departments in the United States. Now this is the Department of Justice said this, so I was not wrong for what we were, what we were standing up for. In other words, so the reality is this: the police they really don't need informants. You have all kinds of informants out there already, so we don't have to play that role for the police. Now I, I respect the police because most people see there's a two a flip side to the coin. I respect the police, but I don't necessarily work with them in that capacity because they have their own issues. You talk about a code of silence. The police don't tell on each other, okay? You look at uh, Laquan McDonald, you know, you had uh, Jason Van Dyke ex executed this guy, and all the police filled out reports that were on location. They filled out uh, reports that stated and, and supported Jason Van Dyke's version of what happened. And now they've lost their job. Jason Van Dyke is in jail, and it goes all the way up to the top level. Even Mayor, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, he overlooked it because he ended up talking to some African-American pastors, and they say, well, just pay the family off, everything would be cool. But everything was not cool because it wasn't right. Now, Laquan McDonald's story is just one story out of thousands of stories. It just so happened uh, now in the social media uh, era, uh, you know, everything is being videotaped, you know, so you can't just get away with what you used to get away with. So my relationship with the police is, you know, here or there. Uh, and I, have, I do have respect for the police, and, uh, and I wish the police department the best, but they have a lot of issues they need to address first. Just being honest with you. So how important then is it to yeah. have people from those neighborhoods have right. these you know, young men and women maybe get into the police force, do they have a chance to get in and, and make those changes? Or is it just such a such a tight unit, yeah. you know, it's like, are, you, are they gonna make the changes maybe yeah. to the police force? And I, mean, I think uh, a lot of changes are being made now. I really truly believe that because what's happening is that young people, they can just get the message in their minds to become police officers. I believe they can make the, uh, the quantum leap to become a police officer, you know. As I, I have relatives that are police officers, you know, I'm not against the police department. Some people think I'm anti-police, but I'm not. My thing is I'm, I'm pro-truth, you know, as long as you're right. Even on the streets, it's, it's the same thing goes on the streets. As long as the brothers are honest with me, let, let's try to work this out, we're good. And the same with the police department, because there's a big his, historical problem in black America with the police all the way from the beginning of the Black Panther Party. You know, if you want to be technical about it, because Black Panther Party, they raised up because of police brutality and excessive force in Oakland, California. 
and it was taking place all across the United States. So a lot of times people get labeled as radical, militant. That's not who we are. We're intellectual thought leaders, and people try to put us in a box and corner us like we just mad at everybody. We're not mad at nobody. My thing is we're not going to allow you to keep stepping on us. You know, we might be, the message could come in a radical way or it could come in a real intellectual way. But people try to label you when you stand up like this. That's what happens. Even, even on the streets, would you ask me, is it dangerous? Yes, it's dangerous. I had a guy that told me one day he'd put me to sleep if I continue to meddle in his business. I can't tell you the way he told me. I'm laughing now. He didn't put me to sleep, but I say the young guy's life. The man told me, you know, he, he said it twice. He said it in, in the strongest language possible. Man, I put you to sleep if you keep meddling in my business. Man, look here, I had to rub my forehead for a minute, you know, but we say the guy's life, you know, the beat goes on. But So, yeah, if you're out here sincerely, you're going to have some uh, close calls out there. And you're living there right on the front lines. Yes. Every, you know, day All the day. time. Yeah, you know, all the time you're in there. I still do it. I'm not young as I used to be, but we still go out. And uh, I'm working on an active conflict right now where some guys uh, from the south side of Chicago, they, they're targeting a, another young guy, but this young guy may have been involved in something he should not have been involved in. So you have to weigh out all the particulars and make sure you know, have all your facts straight before you uh, begin to talk to everybody. Because uh, if you don't have all your facts, you might mess something up. Wow. It's deep. It's deep. <laughs> it, it really is. And we've had right, an opportunity right. to talk to you and ask you questions. Yeah. I want to remind our viewers on Facebook. I, I see we have uh, quite a few watching right now. If you have questions for uh, Mr. Ceasefire T.O. Hardiman here, um, Feel free to send that along, and we will ask uh, we will ask Tio as we go. We also have a couple other points of business. We are now on ninety point three FM, so if you are listening on the radio, uh, or you won't be hearing us if you're listening on the radio. If you're watching this on uh, live stream, tell your friends to tune in to ninety point three FM. We'll have our producer update that on the slate as well. Um, we also. Um, have an event going on later today that Sean, I'd just like you to touch upon if you yeah. So mind. today, uh, one to four p.m. at the Edison Park Inn, uh, we're going to have our Union Day out. This is our second annual Union Day out. Our first one was in Crestwood on the south side. Now we're going to the north side. At um, it's in Edison Park at the Edison Park Inn, one to four p.m. Come out, all union members welcome. Anyone who wants to join a union, come on out. We're going to have food. We're going to have drinks. We're going to have some raffle prizes. Make sure you come out and. Uh, it's going to be a really good event. It's going to be a lot of people out there. Tio, sounds like, uh, I'm sorry, not Tio. Sean, sounds like you have a full day, but Tio, it sounds like you have one too. After this, you are attending a, a peace rally. Is that correct? No, what happened? We've organized. I just want to say this for the record, too. I have, it's not just about Tio Hardiman. I have a man, Don Durkee. You know, he works with me, Tyrone Muhammad, a lot of the good brothers in the community that I work with, Esau Keller. Just giving them a shout out, Raymond Richards. Just a few people out there that Angel Dickens and some of the good people out there that assist me in the work that we do on the street level. But today, we have a uh, pre-Thanksgiving Peace Summit on the west side of Chicago. I'm bringing together the different clips from that area to, to try to broker a peace understanding with them, which is important. Plus, we're, we're going to have a little food there, and we have a few other people supporting the event today. So I think it's going to turn out pretty good. I haven't had no real issues whenever I organize, and I'm, I'm grateful to God and the spirit of my ancestors as well that when it comes down to the work we do, because I have to pray before I ever go into any situation. I pray, I've been praying three times a day for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, sincerely, I pray three times a day. I'm not, I'm not a Muslim, but I just pray three times a day. I'm more of a Catholic. I was raised Catholic, but you know, I believe in God. So that's what helps me out uh, in my endeavors. Um, I, I'm just gonna bring this up because that's you brought right. up the prayer, but but it yeah. seems like you have a lot of interfaith uh, cooperation in what you guys do. Yeah. Am I, um, I'm trying to think. Um, 
and I don't want to put anything out there if I'm incorrect, but is That's there a right. lot of interfaith uh, cooperation? Is there is there different people stepping up to do what they believe is right? Um, I, I'm thinking one of the sisters I used to see on the street, uh, was it Amina Muhammad? Amina, Amina. Um, Amina. Yeah, she'll be there with me today. Yeah, Amina works with me too. She's running for Congress right now. Oh, I did Congress not know that. Yeah, she's right. running for Congress, yeah. Amina Matthews. Uh, t tell me a little about how you, uh, how you find the people who are like minded, like hearted in terms of working with you for this common mission. Like, how did you two meet? How do you meet the other people who step up for or this? Or do they come to you, or do, are they kind of actively seeking this organization? Yeah, what it comes down to, I have a, it's overwhelming. I have a lot of people that would like to, you know, work with my organization, but, you know, we don't receive the funds we used to receive. I'm trying to raise funds right now. You know, there was a time with Ceasefire, we raised money uh, because I was at the university. And we have your independent organization, you know, I, you know like, my organization is Violence and Wellness Incorporated, so it's harder to raise the millions of dollars again, but we're getting, hopefully, sooner or later, I have a few meetings with people, hopefully we can make some things happen with the foundations out here. That's important, too, because you need resources. Once you get finished talking, uh, you know, God has blessed me to do a lot of work without a lot of resources because I know everybody. That's the difference right there. Going all the way back to when I was 17 years old, I used to call myself Black Gold. That was like the name I gave myself for whatever reason. I can't even tell you why I called myself that, right? But the reality is that I've been putting in work for a long time. People know me, my household name, so it's different because God, I have the spirit of a thousand people in me, not a thousand personalities, but a thousand people in me. That's why I was able to run for governor. That's why I announced that I was gonna run for president because my spirit is real strong. Sincerely, I mean this, we can do a lot with a little, a whole lot with a little. And we proved that when I ran for governor in 2014. I had around, you know, we spent, we didn't have no real money, not no major, major money, but we got 30% of the state vote. Now, some people say the votes were like protest votes against Quinn, but anytime somebody votes for another person, that's a protest vote. So stop playing games with me. I put myself out there. The polls had us at 5%. We secured 30% of the state vote because I prayed the night even before the election kicked off. And uh, I just prayed and I felt that God sent intercessors out there to vote for me. <laughs> That's the way I feel about it, sincerely. And I believe I would have been a, a real good governor of the state of Illinois because uh, I didn't come from no like wealth. I didn't come, I can't, I'm a working class person. I think I would have represented the state in a major way. So going touching on that now, yeah. with the, a little bit of the political landscape, uh -huh. how, how difficult is it, especially in today's day, even back in 2014, right. but especially now, really getting active, active in politics if you don't right. have those big funds and big packs. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, is there a shot for just kind of the everyday, hardworking men and women activists right. to really make a big name in politics? That's a good question. Uh, it's not, to me, put it like this, I can only speak about my own experience. If you don't have a, the spirit of a thousand people in you, <laughs> you shouldn't run because if you don't have the money, you, you need something else. You need that extra edge when you put yourself out there. See, I'm the guy I'm not scared. I speak truth to power. I held my own with all the big shots, the big titans, they call them, like J.B. Preston. He's a billionaire, but he's no different than I am. See, I don't look at life that way. I think we all the same, we're human beings. I don't put nobody on no pedestal. When I meet with JB, I just call him J to the B. He'll tell you, we joke, J to the B, what's happening? Because <laughs> I'm not putting you on no pedestal just because you're the governor. I'm not doing it, not me. Everybody else can do that. My thing is, uh, we should, see, there, there should be some political, like, finance reform anyway. So, therefore, people that don't have the billions of dollars should be able to run in the state, should have, or the federal, or the states, should allow us, there should be a cap. This be a cap of $500,000, let a person run so we can all have equal playing time within the media and all that kind of good stuff because it's all about getting your message out there. And I'll say this here, it may, might, might sound comical, but the way politics are staged and set up across America, you can have a Martian that can show up on a UFO with a two-piece suit on or a three-piece suit on with a duffel bag full of money, and he can become the governor. 
because it's not like they know the billionaires. The people don't know the billionaires. We have more registered poor and working class registered voters than we have uh, billionaire registered voters here. I looked up, I did my research when I was running for governor. You have 17 billionaires in Illinois. If the billionaires support each other, they couldn't win anything. They couldn't win a Boy Scout seat. So the reality of it, guys like me, a lot of people, you know, there's pros and cons of T.O. Hardy because I speak this way. People get upset sometimes and say, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? I'm a man of God. I'm not a preacher. I'm not, the, I'm not perfect. I'm the not-so-perfect candidate, but I know I, I do my research when I talk. I make sure that I'm making sense, and I make sure that I'm representing the people. So that's the difference with me, and I, and I appreciate all the support I got. 125,500 people that voted for me, I appreciate each and every one of those votes. And the people told me they were going to vote for me. I just didn't have enough resources to get my message everywhere. Other than that, I mean, white, black, Hispanic, uh, Asian, I won votes all over the state. We won 30 counties back then, uh, the entire state. So it's not a race thing for me. It's a people thing. That's what it's all about. So guys like me that had the courage, uh, sometimes we get labeled too. You know, the guy might be lost his mind. I've had some of my personal friends come to me, man, are you crazy? You running for governor, president? Yeah, I'm running for governor and president. Yes, sir. Why not me? I mean, Donald Trump can become the president. Give me a break. <laughs> well, and, I, and just to touch on that too, yeah, I, yeah. I I read an article. There's 2,200 billionaires in the world. Yes. So there's more bricklayers in the city of Chicago than billionaires in the entire world. And it's funny how they just can, because of that big money, can get their message just so wrapped up. And you have everyday working people that get sucked into this like billion dollar lifestyle. They don't understand us. Right. These billionaires don't live a life exactly. like we live. They right. can't connect with how we live our life. So, you know, I mean, I give you kudos for, for putting yourself out there because it is, you're taking on titans. I mean, in JB, you know, listen, we're supporters of JB. We voted for him, but he's a billionaire, yeah, you know, JB, 10 times over. JB will never understand how it feels to lose a loved one on the streets of Chicago. He doesn't know how it feels to, to take money out of his piggy bank to put gas in his car. I'm not here to knock JB. I mean, I have a relationship with him, a so-so relationship with him, but I don't respect a lot of that stuff. I'm just speaking for myself now, being candid with you. I believe JB can be a king maker. He should have uh, ran somebody for governor and allowed somebody else to get in. Because if I was a billionaire, I wouldn't run for no governor. Because the thing, I'm already cool. I got paid. I don't mind helping people. So when we uh, on the election on, on the election trail, what happened? JB started talking about he's been doing big things all his life for people. Yeah, if you're a billionaire, you you are doing big things. If you're a billionaire, allow a working class person to have that seat. Sincerely, but now I won't get stuck on it. You know, but the reality is that I've maintained a real good relationship with Chris Kennedy. I value my relationship with uh, State Senator Daniel Bence. These are good people that I've uh, you know, established relationships with, and we keep them going even today. And uh, God has blessed me to have relations, uh, to establish relationships with brothers on the streets all the way to the top level. Now, I met with Prime Minister David, former Prime Minister David Cameron some years ago, uh, former Queen, well, Queen North from Jordan, you know what I'm talking about, the mother. And I met with her, and I have a picture with her. The Secret Service guy say nobody can get close to the Queen. I said, there's no way in the world I'm not going to take a picture with the Queen. You know, y'all just got to just understand this. You have to understand this one here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you might stop one of me, but that's I'm the right, man with a thousand I'm taking, I'm lives. Taking this that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. Speaking of the voice and how it doesn't always get out there for the common uh, person, for the everyday man, do I remember correctly when there were certain um, platforms you were invited to speak on? Um, running for governor, yeah. and then certain other, I'm, I'm thinking TV stations, yes. uh, you didn't meet the criteria because of certain criteria you had. Do you view this as, as a fundamental unfairness to the democratic process that certain people can't get on shows well, or have the same platforms? Or well, They come up with these policies on, on uh, news stations or television, I mean, on some of these uh, television cha channels, whatever you call them. What happens is this here. Uh, you know, I got 28.1% of the state vote in 2014, so that that made me 
qualified to uh, be a part of any debate. But they try to use and play with the numbers on you. See, I wish they would do away with polling systems in the United States because the polling systems, what they do, they mislead people. Like in 2014, they had me at 3 to 5%, and I finished with 28.1% of the state vote. So if it wasn't for that misleading poll, therefore I could have participated on a lot of these televised uh, debates or whatever the case may be. And so if you, if you notice... If I slow it down a little bit, I talk kind of fast sometimes, but whenever I slow it down... Well, that's good because we got a short show, that's right. but and we got a lot of <laughs> no, information. No, so. Whenever I slow it down and I make sure I get my rest, I make sure my talking points are really concise. So therefore, nobody could actually debate with me and win a debate with me because I come from the bottom to the top. So you can't win a debate with me because I'm not coming from based on privilege all my life. I'm coming from the nitty gritty, just like the show here, the grind. I love it, you know. So the reality is that, yeah, some of the news channels, they actually discriminated against candidates like myself, without a doubt. Uh, WTTW, I appreciate them, but they didn't have us on the final debate because they're talking about criteria and numbers, but I, I polled. The, the criteria is that you have to poll over 10%. I polled at 28%, so it's a bunch of BS, but I cannot fight every battle. It's like trying to fight Muhammad Ali Tyson and George Foreman at the same time. <laughs> you know, you can't fight every battle. You have to step back some time and reanalyze, but it, it never stopped me. I stayed on the ballot, I ran. There were many opportunities I could have kind of backed up out of the race and partnered with uh, somebody else, but I, I stayed true to the people and true to the cause. I'm not a sellout. Nobody can put that label on me. Uh, the people came to me saying, look at what you want to do. I want to run for governor. That's what I'm planning to do. I'm staying in the race, and that's just what I did. Yeah. What kind of support did you get from uh, your community? What kind of support did you get from the institutions, from uh, um, the churches, for instance? Is there is there any story that you'd like to share about that? Because well, or, or, there must be a way you were able to get that 20% despite not having the fundamental yeah. access that people did. What, are the, what were the challenges? Well, the black church, I had a lot of African-American pastors that supported me, but you have to understand it's about money. It's all about big money. You know, J.B. Prisker, he spread it out, he spread it the money all throughout the black church. You know, they're not gonna support me when it comes down to the dollar bills because therefore one of their family members might get a job, a high level position, an appointment, whatever the case may be. And some of the pastors get money behind the scenes. It happens all the time. There was a group of young guys that they uh, bust into a meeting on the South Side of Chicago, it went viral, it was like a, a million views on this video because you had JB meet with some pastors behind closed doors talking about how he wanted to support the pastors. But in black Chicago, once again, no matter what JB has done, the conditions have not changed. We still have almost 500 homicides this year. We have over 1,000 abandoned storefronts just on 79th Street, from 79th and Damon to 79th and, and Gates, all the way east. There are 1,000 abandoned storefronts. And we have people losing their homes, uh, being overtaxed by the former uh, county assessor. Now you have a new county assessor, whatever the case may be. But they, it was proven that they were overtaxing the homes in the south suburbs and the west, south, and east of Chicago compared to Skokie and other communities out in Everston, okay? So the reality is that you have a lot of disparities taking place. That's another reason why I ran for governor because I want to really, really represent the working class people. Right now, JB has increased the gas tax. They've increased how much it costs to purchase a license and all that kind of stuff. That impacts poor people. When you go to the gas pump and you got to pay two times the tax now, that impacts the pocket of poor people. So that's why I ran, too, because I want to really be a foundation for poor, poor and working class people. So to touch on that, because, you know, I'm, I'm a union organizer with the bricklayers. Yeah. Obviously, our whole life is building and mm -hmm. development. Right. Um, you know, I, I always say you can never have too many organizers, and, you know, I know you can never have too many activists, people out there on the street fighting every day. How important is it in these neighborhoods that don't have any development to get development in there? 
and how important, and what's the role that these aldermen play? Because I know we always are dealing with aldermen and, and kind of how they want to build in development. How important is it to, to make sure that development is getting to these, to all these different neighborhoods so that they can have opportunity to have more jobs and, and you know, kind of have more of an outlet for these neighborhoods? Well, it's all about unifying. You see, you have to understand, I'll go back to just black Illinois for a minute. You don't mind as I speak in different mm -hmm. terms. There's uh, close to 2 million African-American people registered to vote in Illinois. The African-American community is like a voting block of people. But if we could just organize and unify our votes, even with the Bricklayers Union and everybody, uh, you know, everybody plays a role. But therefore, we can really uh, receive uh, the majority of resources that are due to our communities. But we don't receive the resources because we have individuals going in and getting their piece of the pie. Uh, for example, Al Sharpton out of New York City. Allegedly, now I'm using alleged here. Allegedly, he took $3.8 million from Comcast to remain quiet because Byron Allen is suing Comcast for their lack of African-American programming, okay? Now, uh, it came out that Al Sharpton took $3.8 million. So what happens time and time again, I'm not saying he did it, it's an allegation, but there's a little paperwork out there, okay? So the reality is that a lot of times in black Chicago, black Illinois, black United States, we have these so-called leaders that go and take money off the top end, and therefore the people down in, in the community, they don't see any of the benefits because people have sold them out from the top end. This has happened time and time again. I'm they not forget saying, where they come that's from. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm not saying something I'm just making up, it's been proven. And it comes out in the numbers all the time. Three point eight million dollars. I saw Al Sharpton dancing in a video about two or three months ago. I know why he was dancing now. <laughs> I can yeah, see why he was yeah, dancing. Three point eight million. Three point eight million. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd be dancing yeah, right, too. Right, right being you, you, both of us. Right? Yeah. So and so you have to see that too with these African American aldermen that yeah. there are. And again, I'm not throwing any under the bus. I'm not gonna say by names. But in these neighborhoods, I mean, do they get up and, and or is it a thing where they do want to make a difference and they do really find themselves of getting in the game and does the political world change that or is it just kind of them getting sold out by the money because it is hard to stay yeah. true to yourself and that's a lot of respect to where you come from you know like you go through the grind and then you get to right. the top and you stay true to what you believe in well we live in a capitalistic society we have to be honest about it money makes the world go around there's a former comedian richard Pryor. everybody know about richard Pryor. he says it's better to have money than to need money and not have it. <laughs> you know, you know who your uh, true friends are. If you ever get sick or if you ever get broke, okay. If you ever, if you don't have no money, uh, you need. Uh, most people don't have five people they can call to get some money. It's hard. People don't want to give you their money most times. So it's important to build a foundation. I tell young guys on the streets all the time and young women, uh, go to go to school, go to work, do the best you can. If you still live with your parents, save your check for the next five years. And next thing you know, you might have $100,000 in the bank. Stop playing games. Uh, sometimes working a job may be kind of slow because you're waiting on a paycheck every two weeks, but it's the best way to go about it because if you're in the street life and you might be making $100 a day, the thing is you're watching your back, you got to worry about getting shot, worry about getting arrested and all that stuff, and you can just go to work and get a check every week or every two weeks and save your money, especially if you live with your parents. And then once you move out, and if you got a girlfriend on top of it, she's making money, you can save a couple hundred thousand dollars in five years. It can, it, it can happen. It's doable. So the thing is, young people have to get that message in their minds and know that they can rise up to another level. It's very important they uh, receive that message. What's the way, what's your philosophy to counteract recidivism? What's your philosophy to get people who maybe have records and, and are not able to get these jobs to find other solutions to not go to what might be easier and more lucrative, but to find this other path? I'm sure your organization has. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. I know there's another foundation. I believe it's Safer Safer Foundation. Safer Foundation right. that, that that specializes in this. I'm sure it's an intrinsic 
or is it an intrinsic part of what you guys do as well? What's your philosophy? Well, we with refer people to the Safer Foundation all the time. They've been doing a lot of good work. The reality to reduce recidivism, it takes a lot of work, uh, and people have to be ready to change. You see, we have about a 50%, 52% recidivism rate here in Illinois right now. The recidivism rate used to be higher. But there's no real proven, there's proven models out here that address the issue of recidivism, but it takes a whole lot of work because it takes an entire village to raise one child, so to speak. So you have uh, Safer Foundation, some of the Gateway Foundation uh, drug treatment centers and stuff like that to help people with other associated problems because most guys that break the law and become offenders, once they're released, there should be a pathway that was set up for them right before they're released. In the prison, the Illinois Department of Corrections, they're doing their best for example, if you go to if you convicted of like a murder some years ago, and now you got like 20, 30 years. So let's say you've done 20. So you go from maximum to minimum to medium. Then you go to minimum, and in the minimum process, you start working on career building before you release onto the streets. See, the bad what, what's really bad is when some people are released from prison, they just go right back to the community, and therefore they end up going back to jail because uh, they, they don't have no opportunities, no resources. But I don't want to just make excuses. My thing is everybody has to man up. Sincerely, you have to man up. I grew up in poverty. Sincerely, I never really told my entire story. You ever been so broke you didn't want no money? <laughs> I grew up in poverty, okay? So I'm not going to play games with people out here that are watching or listening. You have to man up. Everybody has to man up. I can recall making uh, money working at day labor, making $20 a day. That $20 meant a whole lot to me because I didn't have it, okay? I did not have it. The $20 back then meant that I could, back then I used to drink a little bit back in the day. That, that meant I could buy me a, a, a beer, you know, a Miller High Life, whatever, a Budweiser, an Italian beef sandwich. <laughs> I mean, real talk. I'm talking about real talk here. So the reality, people have to man up, whether you're an ex-offender or whoever you might be, man up, go to work, take care of your family, period. And I think you'll be okay because there are a lot of jobs in society. There are a lot of jobs out there. People just have to assert themselves. Now, the skill set might be a challenge, Therefore, you go to job training programs and make sure you get a good resume and put yourself out there. Well, and just to, to plug some uh, yeah. some jobs, you yeah. know, the Bricklayers Union and, mm -hmm. and most all building trades unions, you know, I mean, we, we really encourage uh, young men and women who don't want to go to college, get into the trades. It's a good opportunity. Like you say, you know, people yeah. come out of, you know, jail and, and what are they going to do? And, and maybe they don't want to make eight bucks an hour, right. you know, and I mean, I, I think it's so important to, you know, give careers because... All those factory jobs, they all got shipped overseas. Half the city got shut down because all these these jobs aren't available anymore. So there's really not too many opportunities to make money. And you know what? Here's the labor movement is a right. perfect example where you can actually have a work a, a hard day's wage or that's day's pay and make right. some money. You know? some money. You feel good about yourself that you're part of something bigger that's actually you know giving you a nice lifestyle. You know, I, I do want to talk about, um, I'm interested in your videos. As you know, I'm the vice president of uh, NABIT, which uh, represents a lot of videographers. So I'm always okay. very fascinated with storytelling. Tell me about the, uh, the, the storytelling you're trying to do with your YouTube channel. Yeah. Tell me about what uh, viewers, listeners can expect to find on this. Is it um, stories of the people on the ground? Tell, tell, yeah. tell me what we're well, looking at. I just at. launched a, a new YouTube channel titled... Uh, T.O. Mr. Ceasefire Hardeman, uh, True Violence and Erupted Stories, like a web series. So what I'm doing there is that I have like 100 episodes in my mind and on paper. Uh, these are episodes, uh, real life stories in regards to how we stop somebody from killing another person on the front end. 
So I'm just, I'm just telling the stories right now myself, but uh, pretty soon what I plan to do is uh, re-enact uh, some of the stories with actors and everything to show people across the world that you can stop violence on the front end, but it's all about you know having the right people working with you. And then I have some of the people who, whose lives we saved to come and interview on my channel as well, because I don't want to make it just about me. But I am Mr. Ceasefire, and I plan to film eventually some stories uh, like some real serious stories on, in regards to stopping the violence to a point where you'll see it's like it's going to be like a web series. You're going to have part two, but like right now I'm in episode number six, but pretty soon you'll see me filming an entire movie on YouTube about, you know, dealing with uh, the violence in Chicago as Mr. Ceasefire. I had to put on my acting hat then because I have all my dark shades, you know, you know built guy, you know, doing what we got to do, you know. I, you know. I have a lot of energy, man. That's just the bottom line. I want to thank God for allowing me to be myself. You know, see, and a lot of times it's not a lot of money right now in the mix, but God has been taking care of me anyway. God has been taking care of me. And I, I do teach, you know, and I have an organization, but eventually I want to get back to that level where I can raise, you know, two or three million dollars for the organization. So eventually I'm reaching out to foundations now to see if they're open-minded. And I, I do predict that the YouTube channel should go viral in about another six months. You know, I mean, we're at 500 subscribers now. We just started two weeks, and it's not easy to get to subscribers like, like you want them overnight. But we're at 500. I've had, like, 9,000 views on my first video, close to 9,000, second video, 6,000, 5,000. We'll get there. Pretty soon you're going to have three or 400,000 views, 20,000 subscribers, and, and the beat goes on. I just see it happening. I see it manifesting. So I'm starting out now with just telling a few stories, but eventually we're going to take it to the highest level possible. Where do you get the energy? You've done a few things. Well, <laughs> only I can tell you, running for governor in you know, the entire state, you know, I found you have 4,920 cities and towns in Illinois. I wish I could have visited all of them, but I did my best. We, we hit the, the whole state. And uh, it's just the energy. God gives me energy. I must admit, I work out. I take my vitamins. I try to get my rest. It's not where it should be all the time. But, you know, the reality is that God gives me energy. It's just the way it is. I feel good. I feel good at the age I am now. I feel real good. Yeah. Yeah, well, keep it up. The city needs more people like you, that's for sure. Right. So um, so what does the future hold for T.O. Hardeman? Is there going to be an alderman, T.O.? No. You no. know, yeah. a congressman? Or is the, the no. political world kind of uh, behind you now? Well, right now, you know, I'm, I'm just going to lay, lay low for a minute. I'm looking at uh, possible, possible run for Cook County Board President. I love to take J.B. Prisco, and I say this in a, in, a, in a comical way, you know, I just kind of mix it up to show people I'm human. I say this because if you look at the numbers, when Chris Kennedy ran against J.B., Daniel Biss, and myself, if Chris Kennedy had ran against J.B. by himself, he probably would be a governor because of the numbers. Uh, J.B. got a little bit over 600,000 and something votes in the primary, and I think it was 577,000, something. Daniel Biss was in the 500, and Chris Kennedy came up, and I think, a little bit over 400,000. I might have had the numbers off just a little bit, but... J.B. would not have won the primary. If Biss had ran against him by himself, he would not have won. If Chris Kennedy had ran against J.B. by himself, he would not have won. I don't care how much money he spent, the numbers dictate that. So what I'm saying is that if I got a chance to go one-on-one -on -one with J.B., I would go for it, one-on-one. -on -one. Even though he's a billionaire, I would go for it. It may sound kind of crazy to people, but I had the courage to do it, and I believe the working class, and the only thing I need, just put it like this, a guy like me, I only need about $500,000. $500,000, I would defeat J.B. Preston as governor of the state of Illinois. They would probably have to come up with a lot of stuff when we try to maybe make, make uh, knock my name down a little bit, whatever they might try to research on or whatever. But I truly believe in my spirit of spirits. With $500,000 in my energy, I would defeat JB. Most people know that. They know that. I'm just basing on numbers. I'm not saying this based on no just T.O. thinking, okay? I'm looking at the numbers. JB would not be the governor right now if Chris Kenny had a one-on-one -on -one with them or Daniel this. And I believe, uh, I don't know who's going to run against him no coming up, but we'll just see. Cook County Board President or Governor again, we'll see. Because I'm just, I mean, I like, I like to go on the debate stage. 
I like the campaign trail. It's just I feel good when I'm out there just representing the people. So you want to go for the big stuff. Well, no, Alderman Congress. You, right. you, you know, no, you Congress is a good spot. Don't get me yeah. wrong. It's not, yeah. it's not, I don't have no ego. It's not about no ego. Yeah. I, mean, I want to be clear. I'm a very humble servant of the people. But Congress, yes, indeed. I look at the con con congressional seat. Alderman, I don't, I'm not interested in the Alderman seat. Mm -hmm. And plus, I don't want nobody, this might sound funny, but we all human beings, right? I don't want nobody telling me what to do and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just not in that mindset. I yeah. work for myself. I've been this way for a while. I'm not headstrong, trust me, and I'm very humble, but I don't want nobody calling shots on me. I just, I can't do that. That's the reason why I never got involved in no game, because I didn't want no game chief telling me what I had to do. I'm a grown man. I can't deal with that kind of stuff. I just can't live my life like that. You know, I was going to tell you to put your headset on, and I was oh, like, I'm oh. not telling Teal what to do. Teal, <laughs> 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 you do Teal. But, but right, um, right. I, I got to tell you, I mean, it's just been invigorating to, to yeah. hear somebody talk, not, um, talk about activism, talk about what it took to create. And, and that's the thing. You created a name for yourself. When something happens, the media seeked you out. You are a known figure. Um, tell me about your interactions with the other community leaders. Like, every time something happens, you'll see community leaders come on. How does that work? Uh, do you guys have uh, share information? Do you have a good relationship in general? Uh, you, you know uh, some of the ones that I'm talking about. There are some fairly regular ones. Yeah, I have a pretty good relationship with everybody. But you have to understand, uh, what it comes down to, what I'm getting tired of now, is uh, once somebody gets shot and killed, everybody wants to show up with the circus. You know, like, what they're going to do next to stop the next killing. So when the next killing happens... Uh, you know, then they talk about what they're going to do to stop the next killing. And next thing you know, you see a press conference, they're asking for money. My thing is, black death has become a hustle in Chicago, and people need to understand that sincerely. And I'm backing up with numbers once again. I'm not just speaking on this. So a lot of the leaders that you say I partner with, I respect the leaders. But black death has become a major hustle. It's a money-making machine because people are raising millions of dollars saying they're going to stop the killing. And here it is in Chicago, we almost had 500 homicides, 454 last year. So the reality, what are you really stopping out there? You cannot really stop a killing unless you have a personal relationship with the guys on the streets. There's no other way to do it. And it's not based on the program, so I'm getting tired of all the uh, circus, you know, the, the show and all that kind of stuff because people are dying. The money the people are raising out there, that money should go to the victims' uh, families. That money should go to the families. Right now, Darion Albert, you remember Darion Albert was uh, beaten to death at uh, Finger High School, High School back in 2010. His mother is still struggling. She doesn't really have no resources. But, you know, you got organizations that raise like, raise like $50 million behind that. They raise $50, $60 million. His mother doesn't even have a pot to, to, to pee in. You know, real, real talk. And she doesn't mind me saying this because she's a friend of mine. I'm advocating for her. So we have to stop the little monkey show out here, the money hustle, and uh, really help people out. Because anybody can talk about, talk about what they're going to do uh, to prevent the next shooting. Let me just say this quickly, too. I've been in situation, situations that were so tense. So people playing games. I would have more respect for you when you do an interview if you can tell me the last time you really stopped a killing, opposed to you getting on the news after somebody gets killed. That's the reason why I launched my YouTube channel to uh, tell stories how we stopped it on the front end. On my YouTube channel, nobody got shot. We stopped it before it happened. So the reality is that stop playing games with the people because you living in your nice high rise down on Lakeshore Drive, living a good life, making millions of dollars off the backs of black people that have been killed. It's not right. We have to change that narrative, and I plan. That's my next fight, to be honest with you. So you'll see me on the news pretty soon with thousands of people fighting this particular issue and exposing the fact that black death is a hustle. It's time to stop it. It's been this way for way too long, but uh, that's my next fight. Just to just to answer your question. Tom.
I think easy to talk about question. it. Lots of lots of yeah. people talk about it, but not too many uh, yeah. are are about it. And you are yeah. one of those people. So keep the fight going because the city needs more people actually hitting the streets, yeah. boots on the ground. You know. I gotta tell you, to you, I mean, one show. I, I think it's not enough to keep up with the uh, thousand lives you lead, and we're gonna have to get you back on at some point. Yeah, that's fine. I, I, I know you got a lot going on with uh, with your peace uh, summit, right. with your YouTube channel, but we would like to keep updated with what's going on with those. So hopefully, we'll have you back on here. Yes. Um, but uh, you, you, you know what? I almost got sidetracked again. We want to remind our viewers that after the show. Um, this will be rebroadcast, and also uh, we have an event uh, coming up later today. We also have a full. Oh, I'm sorry, Theo. Did you want to say something? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, actually, could I get a quick oh, yeah. shout out on uh, oh, your channel do. too? Yeah, please do. Um, everyone watching, life, love, and the grind. Uh, we are now on ninety point three FM. Um, so make sure to join uh, myself and Sean Allen, the other co-host. This is who Tio was talking to. He wasn't uh, talking to right. himself, <laughs> yeah. so. That's what's up here. Yeah. Um, Tio, it's been a great show. Um, Sean, would you like to close yeah, out? Tell I us just a wanna, about the event today. And yeah. Um, 1 to 4 p.m. Edison Park Inn uh, in Edison Park off Northwest Highway. Make sure you're there. All union members welcome. Anyone who wants to join a union, bring a union card, get a raffle ticket, food, drinks. It's going to be a good time. Um, all members uh, in the Chicagoland area, come on out. It's going to be a big event. Um, and and uh, another surprise announcement. So we didn't abandon completely our time frame. We have uh, shifted it a little because of this event, but we do plan to uh, Facebook Live and live stream some of that event. We plan to see, um, uh, to keep in touch with the community. That's what it's all about. And, and so you will see us later on today as yeah, well. Absolutely. Uh, Teal, what can I say, man? Uh, Fun, full yeah. uh, show, and we appreciate you Definitely coming out. Definitely to have you back and learn more of the grind that you've gone through. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Mr. Well, Ceasefire, the man. I put on my intellectual hat today for all the people checking me out here because I speak in different languages sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah. If you don't mind, I just want to put a shout-out to a good guy here. I want everybody that's watching my show here to definitely support uh, love, life, love, and the grind, right? Life, love, it. and the grind. Life, life, love, and the grind. And then my man Howard McGee is on V103, you know, from 12 to 5. Every Saturday, that's my man Howard McGee. Just want to put a little plug out for him. Uh, that's, that's great. That's cool. Okay, and you, then uh, he's welcome on our show anytime McGee, as well. You're welcome to come out here, Howard McGee. Uh, life, love, and the grind. Uh, Ninety. Uh, Ninety point three FM. Ninety point three FM, and McGee, you're welcome to come out. And then I have other people that might I might recommend to y'all, like my guy Tyron Muhammad's doing some good work out there in the city of Chicago, and a lot of other good people around. Okay. You, you know that's why people tune into Life, Love, and the Grind to find the stories that are out there, the people yeah. affecting our community. So anyone grinding out there for the community, bring them on. We'd love right. to have them. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know our, our viewers, listeners, they deserve the best. It sounds like these people are out there doing their best. So let's let's keep this ball rolling. Yeah. Thank you, Tio. Awesome. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Fire. All right. And I want to thank all my people for uh, tuning in uh, this morning. Share this video with your friends if you like what I'm talking about. I appreciate you very much. You know, I get out. Thank you as well uh, for tuning in. We have to, uh, you know, quiet now in the studio. <laughs> Making it happen. So, uh, once again,